Matthew 7, 13, Jesus is finishing up the Sermon on the Mount. He's very close to the end of it. And he, he gives a commandment. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree, healthy tree, bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So you can see why I might call those the most frightening verses in all of the New Testament. They are hard to read, and I'm going I'm to let you know something. Every single time I've read them over the course of 25 years of studying the scriptures, every single time I read them, there are moments where I just have to say, only by your grace, only by your grace. There are moments where I'm uncomfortable when I read those verses, and I won't lie to you. There have been moments where I've bowed my head over the years and said, Lord, if I am one of those who's come up short, who says more with his words than his life actually evidences, then, Lord, I surrender afresh and anew to you. I, I believe in the perseverance of the saints. Um, just to go on record here, some of you will get what this means. My soteriology tilts reformed. I'm not a Calvinist, but I do believe that God is sovereign in salvation. And I believe that a, a faith that truly saves is a faith that will persevere and endure unto the very end. I believe that God keeps us from falling. But he doesn't do any of those things I just mentioned independently of our will being engaged to follow him in obedience and honor, living for his glory. And so as we walk through this passage tonight, I'm going to do my very best to teach it, and I'm going to move a little more quickly through the beginning of it so we can get down to those verses around verses 16 through 20. And I want us just to listen to the Spirit, and this is what I really want, because here's the thing. I'm not just preaching to these that are gathered here in a midweek service on a Wednesday night. This is a message that will go on TV, it will go on Roku, it will go on YouTube, and it will go through all of our media streams. And this is why I want this message to be heard, because I am convinced that what Jesus says in this passage is going to characterize many American evangelicals and what they hear from him on the day of judgment. 
And so I'm approaching it with sobriety tonight. And so let's, let's just, I'm going to give you four sets of two things that we are to consider in this passage. Here's the first set. It's very simple. Jesus gives us two pathways to consider in verses 13 and 14. Now, if you'll remember something with me, this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And so for basically almost all of three chapters, chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus has been speaking of what the kingdom is. He's been saying, this is what the kingdom is like, this is what I am like, and this is what my people are like. And he's challenged us. He's challenged the legalists to move beyond the law and to find the place of love and honor as the motivation of the heart, not legalistic rule-keeping. He said, oh, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery, but I'm telling you, in the kingdom, I'm telling you, don't even lust because that's adultery of the heart. He said, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I'm telling you in the kingdom, don't live with unforgiveness and anger towards your brother because that's murder of the heart. He said, you're blessed when you're merciful. You're blessed when you're impoverished in spirit. You're blessed when you mourn. You're blessed when you are meek. You're blessed when you are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. That's what the kingdom is like. That's what I'm like. That's what my people are like. And so he's been detailing what the kingdom is like for almost three chapters, but now he's saying, I want you to enter the kingdom. He's saying to the original audience, now I want you to do something with everything I've told you about the kingdom. And so he gives us these two pathways to consider. He opens up by releasing an invitation that anybody can answer. What is the invitation? Enter by the narrow gate. Jesus is speaking as the king of an eternal kingdom, and he's saying, I want you to come into this with me. I want you to come out of the kingdom of darkness. I want you to come out of a life of sin. I want you to come away from the chains of bondage. I want you to step out of your unbelief, and I want you to enter into my kingdom. But notice what he says. The way to do that is through one way. It is a narrow gate. It's, it's the picture of entering into a city through one small door. The walls are all around the city. The gate is open, but you have to enter into this one place. And he, he characterizes it as narrow. In a moment, he's going to add to that, and so I'm going to come back and revisit this thought. But he moves from this invitation to enter, and then he describes this pathway to destruction that is the second choice, the gate of life, the pathway of life, or the pathway to destruction. He says, the gate is wide, and the way is easy, that leads to destruction. And then he adds this, and there are many who go in that way. So here's some unpopular teaching moment number one. This whole thing will be unpopular tonight, so just go ahead and get used to it. The whole thing's politically incorrect, it's religiously insensitive, it is culturally inappropriate, and it is biblically true. And here's what he says. He says, the way to destruction is a wide entry. You, can, you don't have to change. As a matter of fact, you don't have to do anything. Just keep walking the way you're walking without me. And Jesus says, you'll remain on the path of destruction. And he adds this. He says, it's easy. You can come as you are. You can stay as you are. It requires no change of you. You don't have to change your thinking. You don't have to change your attitude. You don't have to change your posture before a holy God. Just come and walk on through. It's wide. Anybody can come this way. It invites and incorporates and allows for anybody to come on the way to destruction. And then he adds the little footnote there. And, he's, and in essence, what he's saying is, and that's the way most people go. Let me give you unpopular teaching moment number two, and then I'm going to quit counting because we will run out of numbers. But most people 
who have ever lived on this planet do not leave this planet with eternal life. Most human beings enter into destruction. They walk the broad path. They refuse the narrow way of God. They choose self over the sovereign. They choose themselves over the king, and they continue on the broad path of destruction, and they exit planet Earth that way. Jesus said, compared to those that find life, most many, compared to the few, that means most, you do the math there, if many find destruction and only few find life, that means most find destruction. And they don't have to do anything to find it. All they have to do is remain as they are. Uh, Our culture teaches us that everybody's good. And the Bible says the exact opposite. The Bible says every human being is depraved. We don't like that word because we think of serial killers and thugs and all that stuff as the depraved. We think of ourselves as prim and proper, pretty good gal, pretty good guy. But the Bible just says that we're, we're all under sin before coming to Jesus that we are by nature the children of wrath, that we are, and David would confess in Psalm 51, in sin I was conceived, and he's not talking about the sinful act of conception. He says from the moment of conception, his sin nature was a reality. And so we can't hide from this. And unfortunately, and I understand non-believers, non-Christians arguing with this. What I don't understand is people that call themselves Christians arguing with this. And so the end result is, is everybody's fine. Everybody's good. We've got prominent pastors in our nation that will go on national television and the reporter or the interviewer will ask them a question like this. Do you believe that some people go to hell if they don't accept Jesus? And very few of these pastors will say, well, I might word it differently, but yes, I believe Jesus Christ is the only way by which a person can be saved, by by which a person can be restored to God. Most of them say, well, I I don't want to put on the the hat of a judge. That's not for me to say. That's above my pay grade. All we got to do is say what Jesus said. And Jesus said that the pathway to destruction is wide. It's easy. That just means you don't have to do anything. And most people go that way. But, happier note, verse 14, he, he, he details the pathway of eternal life. Now, Christians, you need to hear this. As believers, we need, to, we need to get realistic about what we've said yes to. The gate is narrow, verse 14. The way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now, let's just let Jesus, this is a great opportunity for me to believe Jesus. Jesus says that the the entry point into eternal life is very narrow. What does he mean by that? Well, when you look at the rest of Scripture, this is what you find. I am the way, Jesus said. I am the truth. I am the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. Now, you'd have to hire a team of seminary graduates to confuse you about that. He said, nobody comes to the Father except through me. That's what he means by the narrow gate. And so, yes, let's go ahead and address the questions that like to be asked in our culture. And what, when, when these questions are now asked to Christians, especially Bible-believing Christians, th- they're asking them so they'll corner us, so we'll get awkward, so we'll maybe hedge a little bit. And we just need to go ahead and make up our minds to love people enough to tell them the truth about their eternal state. And this is the answer. 
Well, are you saying that Muslims don't go to heaven? No, no, they don't go to heaven because, not because they're Muslims, but because they've rejected Jesus Christ. Jeff, are you telling me that Jewish people don't go to heaven? And here's what I'm saying. People that do not believe in Jesus Christ, whether they are Christianized, Islamicized, or Jewish, if they don't believe in Jesus Christ, the answer is no. They're on the broad way to destruction. Well, Jeff, what about the moralist who tries her best to do good unto others. She doesn't enter into any of the, the nasty nine or the dirty dozen or the terrible ten. She goes to church. She's not really surrendered to Jesus, but she, she thinks really pleasant thoughts about God, and she behaves. Nobody comes unto the Father except through me. Morality saves nobody. Good works on their own save nobody. Awesome intentions and fluffy thoughts towards God save nobody. Jesus said when we stepped into life, we made it through a narrow way, and that way is so narrow, it's only Jesus-shaped. And so we walked through him. He said, I am the door. And so we walked through him, and when we entered, notice what else he said. He says, the way is hard. Now, we're told in the Old Testament that the way of the transgressor is hard. It's a different type of hardship. For the Christian, it's hard because as we follow Jesus along the way, the narrow path, we don't get to bring our pride with us. We don't get to bring our arrogance with us. We don't get to bring our self-government with us. We don't get to bring our bitterness with us. We don't get to bring our pet sins with us. That doesn't, I'm, I'm leaving room for sanctification, so I'm not preaching legalism or sinless perfection. But what I'm saying is this, the way is hard because once we enter into that way, the understanding from the Scriptures is we become a disciple of Jesus. We become a follower of Jesus. Paul would say it this way, what? You don't know that you're no longer your own, but that you've been bought with a price? And so we don't actually get to do whatever we want to do anymore. And so we are now entering into warfare, not only against the devil and the world system, but against that terrible thing called the flesh. You know, we give the devil a lot of credit, and the world system is what it is, but I think I have much less of a problem with the world and the devil than I do with my own flesh. Because wherever I go, there it is calling my name. And so when we're looking at this, Jesus says, yes, there's an aspect of, of it being difficult for the Christian. Now, hallelujah, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Word of God. We have the favor of God. We have the grace of God. We have the mercy of God. We have the indwelling God. And so we are not left on our own to figure all this stuff out. But listen, some of you have had deep struggles during seasons of your life because you're like, Jesus, I, I, I surrender to you. You're my Lord. You're my Savior. You're my King, and I'm following you, and I'm serving you, and I'm being obedient, and I'm being faithful, but this is hard. And Jesus is not uns unsympathetic. He's not a high priest who is untouched by the feeling of our infirmity. He, he empathizes and he connects with us on that, but he could also look at us and say, yes, and I told you it would be hard because you're not glorified yet and we're not completely out of this world yet and we are not completely sanctified yet. And although we are aided and we are enabled and we are indwelt, we are not fully glorified yet and therefore we're going to experience the narrow way often being the hard way but hallelujah, here's the rejoicing. You're among one of the few that found it. Isn't that incredible? When all of human history is tallied and the amount of people that lived on planet Earth is numbered, talking about throughout all the generations, 
the multiple billions of people that are alive right now and the billions that have lived previously, comparatively, the bride of Christ will be comprised of very few people. We don't know how many. I mean, it will be more than likely tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions. But compared to the billions upon billions, it's very few. And yet, he found you. And when you found out that he found you, you found him. He called your name. He came after you. You believed the gospel. The Holy Spirit awakened you to the truth of God. He humbled your soul. He came after you. And so that is so, not, it's both liberating and humbling at the same time. And what it does is it makes me say, if I'm one of the few that have found the narrow path that is sometimes the hard path, then I need to really take this thing seriously. And so that's part of the rest of the, the message. So let's go down into verse number 15 because he's going to switch gears slightly. But in this, there are, he's, he's both instructing us, inviting us, and he's also warning us. And here is the warning word. He's going to give us two leaders to consider. So upon closer inspection, we're considering the two pathways and now the two leaders. Pardon me. First of all, he's, going to, he's just going to testify to the existence of this particular type of leader. He says, beware of false prophets. Beware of false prophets. This is 2,000 years ago. Uh, by the way, all of these points could be hour-long hour messages of themselves. I'm not going to be able to unpack them completely. But he says, beware of the false prophets. Who are these false prophets? Well, the reason why he's telling us to beware of them is because a casual glance at them, you won't know that they're a false prophet because they know how to operate. They know how to flow in a religious Christianized scene. They know how to use the lingo, the verbiage. They know how to give off an air a visible, a, a sensory air of being connected to the Lord in some way. And Jesus is saying, hey, w watch out for them. Matter of fact, in the next part, he says this, they're, they're like wolves wearing the clothing of sheep. And so underneath the sheep-like facade, the, the seemingly Christian appearance of these prophets, we can say preachers, prophets, these are individuals whose motivation is intentionally deceptive. These are prophets who stand presumably to speak on behalf of God. They intentionally come to the church. They come to you wearing sheep's clothing. And then he says, Jesus, omniscience. He says, but I see their hearts and inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Now, I've, ne I've never been a shepherd, neither have I played one on TV. But I do know this, um, a shepherd doesn't want a wolf in the flock. It's kind of bad news. And this wolf is hard to spot because he is posing as a lamb. Innocent, harmless, one amongst many in the flock, that's what he looks on the, on the outside, but beneath that fake sheep exterior lies the heart of a wolf who views the entire flock as a consumable. And we all know the predatory nature, we've seen it in our lifetime, the reports, you know about pastors, preachers, missionaries, evangelists, leaders who stand up, say one thing, know how to work a crowd and move a crowd, and ultimately what they're looking for is some kind of opportunistic mercenary result from their, from their interaction with the flock. They want their money. 
Some of these false prophets want the worship of the people. Don't question me. I'm the man of God. Don't ask me anything. Don't tell me anything. I'll tell you what's true, and it's unquestionable. It's a false prophet. Or sometimes they prey upon the unsuspecting, both in uh, hetero and homosexual ways. They use their power to seduce their wolves, their false prophets. And what's interesting is it's not just their message that upon closer inspection will expose them as a false prophet, but it's also their lifestyle that Jesus will, will talk about here. And so let, let me give you a couple of things that um, I believe highlight almost every false prophet. I'm just going to read them to you. The false prophet avoids preaching on such things as holiness, righteousness, justice, and the wrath of God. They won't touch that. You know why? It thins the crowd. It thins the crowd. And they're addicted to having as many people looking to them, looking at them, and following them as possible. So they preach what the people want to hear because the more people um, equates to more consumables, more money, more worship, more opportunities to take advantage. The false prophet also avoids preaching on the doctrine of the final judgment. Accountability to a holy God is dismissed as an archaic notion, and they will not preach the judgment. They always want to give the syrupy side of the gospel, and again, because that appeals to our flesh. And that's why you can pack out arenas if you refuse to preach on sin, righteousness, sin, judgment to come. The false prophet fails to emphasize the fallenness and the depravity of mankind. So people are frequently told by these prophets that they're inherently good and they're not bad as the Bible actually says all people are. Now I, I even sense when I say that in a congregation like ours we're word-based, we're spirit-led but we're word-based and I even sense when I use a phrase like people are inherently bad, people are like mm, I don't like the way that sounds and I'll just be bold with you it's not up for vote the Bible says it. There is none good, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The righteousness of man is as filthy rags. There is nothing good that dwells in my flesh. No, not a thing. And so a false prophet will never say that. Why? Because it offends the flesh. And false prophets distort. The, this is the number one way you can tell a false prophet. Inevitably, upon closer inspection, if you'll watch and listen for a while, they will at some point start distorting the personhood and or the words or works of Jesus Christ. It will always end up morphing the, the, the personhood or the words or the works of Jesus. They will repackage Jesus, reinvent him to look like something other than he actually is. And then ultimately, as we've already said from Jesus's words, the, the false prophet makes merchandise of the flock. He views the flock as being for him. If it's a female leader, she views the flock as being for her, and um, it's all about them. And Jesus just said, um, you need to consider what kind of leader you're going to follow. Um, they are everywhere, friends. I don't think that there are as many of those false prophets as there are true prophets, true leaders, true kingdom people, but the false prophets have such a magnetized message that to us, they appear successful. And because of the metrics of their ministry and the scope of their ministry, it leads people into a place of lacking discernment. They're thinking, well, that looks like the blessing of God. Friends, come on, let's think for it. Um, 
how many disciples did Jesus end up with on the day of his crucifixion? Not many. All of the 12, one, one betrayed him and the other forsook him, the other 11 forsook him. He had, you know, a handful of people at the foot of the cross. So if, if small crowds indicate uh, not being blessed of God, then we need to have a discussion with Jesus. And if big crowds, we assume, are, are clear indication of the blessing of God, uh, then I, I, I think that we're in trouble. And so I want you to think about this. I literally, I'm asking you to think about it. Not just right now where I'm asking you to think about the messaging that's coming out from the contemporary church in the West. If you're listening to them, and I hope you do. I hope you listen to preachers in general. I hope that your only you know, spiritual feast on the word is not coming from this house. But if you're listening to others, listen to what they say and then say, what do the scriptures say? And if they're not saying what the scriptures say consistently, then you may very well be listening to a false prophet. And most of the time, the false prophet, their goal is to make us feel awesome about us, and then they throw in a little Jesus to sanctify it. Now, I, I do want to say this. Not every error in doctrine, not every sinful act or behavior necessarily constitutes a false prophet. I can tell you there's some, some messages in my history where I said something that had not been fully thought, thought through, and I, you know, I can't think of a, a singular instance, but I know in 4,000 sermons I've probably preached in 25 years, I know there have been moments. Matter of fact, I can think of one. I remember preaching a message one time prior to me fully walking in the Spirit and speaking out against the things of the Spirit and now when I look at Scripture, I can look back on that, and I can say that was theological error that I preached. But it didn't make me a false prophet. It made me an uneducated preacher in that moment. But the false prophet will never repent. And people who are shown their errors will repent. Um, I will say this, a commitment to doctrinal error when they are challenged or confronted with their error in doctrine and they refuse to repent false prophet if they're confronted or reproved for their unethical or immoral uh, patterns of behavior and they refuse to repent false prophet and I say that on good standing through the word of God so we've got two leaders to consider two pathways to consider then Jesus is going to speak in a different way he's going to use a different metaphor and talk to us about these two trees that we should we should consider in verses 16 through 20. And so he gives us this principle, and he's still talking about false prophets. In context, he's still talking about pro false prophets, but this applies to cross the board with this principle he's going to give us. He says, you'll recognize them by their fruits. And then he asks a rhetorical question. Are grapes gathered from a thorn bush? Are figs from thistles? And then he gives the principle. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. What's he talking about? He's saying, don't just listen to the words that come out of a person's mouth. When that person says, I belong to Jesus, whether they're a prophet, whether they're a leader, or whether they're average Joe Christian, doesn't matter. He's saying this, don't just listen to the words that come out of their mouth. The devil knows how to, how to speak like a church member. The devil walk right in here any, any day of the week. Anytime we gather for worship, Satan doesn't mind, he'll walk right in. He'll say, I know that song. I'll sing that song with you. The devil will say amen to a sermon. The devil would get baptized. The devil would get baptized. But if you ever got the devil cornered and you say, 
I hear you singing the songs. I see that you give lip service and say amen to some of the theology. And I, I saw that you got baptized. Let me ask you a question, Satan. Will you bow right now to the Son of God and confess him as Lord? Satan would say, I'll never do that. You see, you've got to go closer inspection with some of this stuff. And I'm not calling us to go out and inspect everybody. That's not your assignment. But what I am saying is as we are living this life, we're called to be discerning believers. And Jesus says this, you're not going to find a thorn bush producing grapes. Why? It's not in its nature. You're not going to find figs popping off of the thistles. Why? It's not in its nature. And then he gives the principle. He says, every single healthy tree will produce healthy fruit. And he said, every poisoned tree or dead tree, it will constantly produce. If any fruit of all, it'll all be rotten. Chance, you, you know this, you're an arborist. Chance runs a tree trimming, tree cutting business. He's cut some trees down at my house. We have a couple of dead ones out in the parking lot that we need to, and you look at it and you're like, I don't expect anything healthy to grow off that tree. It hasn't produced anything in a long time. I don't even know how it's still standing. The only thing we can really do is cut it down to the ground. But here's what he's saying, and this is something we have to listen to as believers. If I'm a Christian, if I'm a healthy tree, if I'm rooted and grounded in the soil of the gospel, if Jesus Christ truly is the Lord of my life, this is what Jesus is saying. Every Christian will produce good fruit. Now, granted, don't press this illustration to the extreme because even a healthy tree can give off a rotten apple every now and then. And I don't want anybody to think, oh no, I sinned last Thursday. That means I'm damned. It's not what that means. But I will say this. If the fruit that is consistently coming off of our lives is bad, sinful fruit, you should question your root system. If there's no fruit, you should question your root system. Because what Jesus says here is, the healthy tree cannot perpetually bear bad fruit, and a diseased tree cannot, and that's the understanding there, cannot continuously bear good fruit. I mean, you might see a, a tree that's, you know, got some disease that's creeping in it, and every now and then it might pop off something edible, but the, the, the tendency is going to be the normal fruit that comes off of a tree that actually distinguishes what kind of tree that is. And it's the same thing with a Christian. What pops off of our lives, our in-and-out day-to-day living, that really is the evidence of where we're planted and where we're rooted. And so Jesus says it again in verse 19 in a, in a very different way. He says, or in a not so different way, he says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, Jesus has not given us a lesson in horticulture. He's not trying to teach us about how to plant trees and harvest fruit. He's talking to us about entering into the kingdom. And he's talking about false professors, professors of faith, false prophets in particular. He is saying to us, when there's a prophet that comes in speaking on the behalf of, of me, the king, you should not only analyze what he says, but you should over time be able to tell from his life whether he's real or he's fake. And, and you know how unpopular that is? It feels actually a little un, uncomfortable in the room right now. Because, Jeff, hold on a second, man. Didn't Jesus say in verse 1 of this same chapter, to judge not lest we be judged? And that's not a call to walk around being, you know, kingdom dunces. He's not saying, you know, check your brains at the door. What he's saying is don't come off vindictive and condemning when you haven't addressed your own issues in your own heart. He's not saying when you see clear evidence of falsehood, pretend you don't see it. That's not what he's saying. 
And when it comes to prophets, listen, I don't know, I wrestled with this. There was a time and a season in my ministry where I felt like it was my responsibility to name false prophets by name in the pulpit. And I found that I could no longer do that without violating um, the principles given in the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, I was doing it with, and I enjoyed it instead of being sorrowful and mournful that tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people are following these false prophets and from media to stadiums and all that. And so I actually had to repent before the Lord and I have not yet received permission since that day to start naming false prophets publicly anymore. I do pray for them now, which I wasn't doing at that time. But I will tell you this, if I'm in a one-on-one -on -one conversation and somebody says, yeah, I just listened to a sermon by fill in the blank, I will, I will gently say, you know, I, I really don't believe that that's actually good for your soul. I don't believe that so-and-so is actually preaching the truth. As a matter of fact, let me cite some examples. And so sometimes we have to do that. And Jesus tells us here in verse 20, he, he says, you've got the perceptions. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And so that's, that's, again, that's a call to careful consideration. This is not, Christianity is not casual. We need, to, we need to go ahead and grasp that. It's A, it's not culturally cool. Biblical Christianity is not culturally cool. That doesn't mean we can't be relevant. It doesn't mean we can't connect. It doesn't mean we need to walk around intentionally acting obnoxious, obnoxiously different than the culture so that everybody says, wow, that's a weirdo. I want to get saved. That just doesn't happen. Nobody's been weirded out into the kingdom of God before. But we are called to live with a distinction and we're probably not going to be regarded as culturally cool. And we certainly can't approach the Christian life casually. Casual Christianity is an oxymoron. There's zero biblical uh, support for a Christianity that just kind of meanders around and just kind of like Jesus, Jesus as it's going and then just kind of really lives on a horizontal earthbound rooting. It's just not biblical. We're called out of the culture. We're called out of the world. We're called out of our flesh. We're called into the kingdom, out of darkness, into light, out of selfishness, into agape, into love. We're called out of so much that there is no fence straddling in the kingdom. And I think the church has lost the bite of that part of the gospel. And everything's just kind of rounded now. It's like rounded edges. And it, it's my opinion that as we approach the last days, the reason why so many people aren't going to endure is because they can't understand anything but a smooth, obstacle-free presentation of the gospel. That everything's supposed to be sweet. That it's not supposed to cost us anything. That it doesn't require anything. It's just believe these, these Bible facts, say yes to them with your mouth, pray a prayer to ask Jesus in your heart and then hey when you sin because you're always going to sin and there's no way to get free from sin because that only happens when you go to heaven and that's become the message of the church and is it any wonder while why, why the gospel is not being advanced like it could be is it any wonder why most Christians don't give I mean hey if there's if there's no accountability to God and God's just going to take care of everything and everybody all gets to go to heaven anyway. Why do I want to waste X amount of dollars every month by giving into the kingdom when God's really not that serious about any of this stuff anyway? And so there's repercussions for how we think on these things. And he gives us a perception by saying, you're going to recognize them by their fruits. So I'm going to spend my last handful of minutes here on this last part. And this to me 
is where it gets really, really intense. And this is a place where I, I want you to do what I've done. Consider your salvation. And again, I'm going to give this, this um, uh, preface here. I'm not trying to guilt anybody into feeling terrible about themselves and leave here shamed and doubting your, your salvation. But I'm going to tell you also that if your salvation is so fragile that you can't do an honest consideration and biblical evaluation of it, that's shaky ground. And that's not the place where you want to be living. Every single one of us as followers of Jesus ought to be able to say, I know what I believe, and I see the evidence of a changed life, not a perfect life, but a changed life that is in, still in process of being transformed. You're not what you're going to be, but you're no longer what you were. And if we can't say that and we panic, um, something is amiss because perfect love casts out that fear. Perfect love doesn't compound that fear. It actually takes it out. And so let's just let the Savior talk as we, we have these two trusts. That's what I'm calling them. Two trusts to consider. One trust is valid. One trust is invalid. And Jesus offers it up without apology here. I'm going to talk to you about counterfeit faith. And it often includes a casual confession. Here's the mind-blowing statement from Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. How do we reconcile that with what Paul wrote to the church at Rome? Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's because it's, it's more than words. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, which even the Lord, Lord, biblically, in, in, in biblical language, both Old Testament and New Testament, when you see the repetition of a word, it speaks of urgency and intensity. So here we have somebody urgently and intensely and honorably, Lord, Lord. It was not only a divine title, recognizing the lordship of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, but it was also a title of honor in their culture. So there's respect, there's, there's human honor, there's urgency, there's, there's some level of understanding that Jesus deserves some, some type of honor and respect. And he says, yeah, not everybody that uses that, those words goes deep enough with them. It's easy off the lips, but it has no root in the heart. Um, here's, here's maybe a little statement that we can, we can kind of anchor in. All true Christians say, Lord, Lord but not all who say, Lord, Lord, are true Christians. So how can we know? Um, very quickly here. I've been asked over the last year or two, Jeff, how come you don't give really aggressive evangelistic invitations? And what I try to do is I try to give the gospel in every message I preach. If you'll listen carefully, there's usually a couple of moments where I'm preaching clearly um, the lordship of Jesus Christ, this, uh, the effectiveness of his atonement for our sins on the cross, his triumph over sin and death and hell and Satan by coming forth from the grave, and I call people to believe. I usually do that in the sermon, and then the appeal at the end of every sermon is not, okay, 
Now, if you believe those facts I gave you in the sermon, I want you to repeat this prayer. Because, friends, I'm going to tell you something. My, my invitation at the end of every message, message is this. Surrender everything you know about yourself to everything you know about him. That's the gospel mandate. Every day, 24-7. Surrender everything I know to surrender about myself to everything I know about him. That's what salvation is. Salvation is living in a state of surrendered trust to a person whose name is Jesus. And so I don't like to maximize the prayer. Lots of people have prayed the prayer. And then we rush to tell them, now you're going to go to heaven when you die. And six weeks later, when their life is clearly, completely unchanged, we just say, oh, they're just backslid. No, they never slid forward. Not backslid. They said, Lord, Lord, and they're not in the kingdom of heaven. So go a little bit further with me. And we, we have to get this down, by the way. We have to get down because oftentimes these people in our family and to protect our own heart from worry, we look at our children and our grandchildren and we say, ah, I know little Johnny doesn't live for Jesus. I know little Johnny's neck deep in sin. I know Susie is going out and doing all these things we never thought she would do. But oh, hallelujah, I remember when she was seven in VBS and she prayed that prayer. And we protect our own hearts from worry and fear instead of going to them in love and intercession for them and saying, based on what you're living, you're lost. You're unsaved. I love you. And, and what we do is we reinforce that moment where they said something religious, but it didn't evidence itself in kingdom reality, but we trace everything back to this prayer, this shibboleth, this abracadabra that they said. And we have more trust in that prayer, no matter there's no evidence whatsoever, and a matter of fact, evidence to the contrary, we have more trust in that prayer than we do in the actual words that Jesus is giving to warn us about things like this. So how do we know the difference? Look in verse 21. Because counterfeit faith not only includes a casual confession, but it dismisses obedience. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So here we have it. It's not only a confession of faith of Jesus Christ as Lord, but that confession of faith is energized by the person of Jesus Christ. When you are saved, you become a new creation. Old things pass away. All things are becoming new. So there's power in the gospel. It's not, it's not nodding your head or signing your name on the dotted line to a set of theological facts about Jesus. It's a surrender of your personhood to, the, to, to his personhood. And what happens is you get a new nature. And the new nature has embedded within it a desire and an enablement to obey. Now, granted, we're told in the book of 1 John that if we say we have no sin, we're liars and the truth is not in us. We don't always obey perfectly. But the general tend, a bend of a redeemed life is we bend towards obedience. And when we are disobedient, we are cut to the core. We are grieved. We are miserable in our sin. You show me somebody that goes to church and they're fine with their sin and they're excusing their sin and their favorite podcast preacher tells them it's okay, it's no big deal. You, 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 you ask Jesus, you believe, and they feel great about it and they feel nothing of their sin. They're lost. They're unsaved. I don't care how many times they've been baptized. I don't care how many times they've said, Jesus, forgive me. If there's no repentance, there's no salvation. 
And so when we read these things, it is so easy for us just to give in to the awkwardness and the discomfort and please don't talk about this. No, we have to talk about it because there's no greater thing that could possibly be on the line than somebody's soul. Jesus looked at the most religious people of his day, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees, and he said, yours is the greater condemnation, meaning your condemnation is more severe because you sat through all the teaching, you had all the writings, you knew all the verses, and you still wouldn't come to me. He says it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it was for the religious cities. And yet, guys, we just want to keep perpetuating a myth that casual Christianity is actually actual Christianity. It's not. So Jesus says, the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. So I, I don't really have time, but I'm, I'm, I'm just going to take the time. I think it's, it's too important here. I'm going to go, I'm just going to limit it to what Jesus describes as the will of the Father in, in the Sermon on the Mount. And so although none of us will be executing perfectly on all these things, as I go through the list, just ask, does that resonate in my spirit? Am I somewhere on the spectrum with these things? And if I'm not, am I convicted that I need to be? Or am I cool with none of this stuff actually being real in my life? So he says, whoever does the will of, of my Father who's in heaven. So we look at Matthew 5 and we ask, am I poor in spirit? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Am I, am I one who mourns for the return of Christ? For they have the comfort. Am I meek? Do I actually hunger and thirst for righteousness? Am I merciful? Am I pure-hearted, mean, meaning am I, am I not double-minded? Am I not playing games? Am I not a hypocrite? Am I a peacemaker? Am I, am I okay? Am I blessed when I am persecuted for righteousness' sake? When I am reviled and people talk about me because of my relationship with Jesus? Can I rejoice in that? Am I the salt of the earth? Am I the light of the world? Do I let my good works shine before man so they may glorify my Father in heaven? And he goes on, and he says, anger is murder of the heart. Do I live in a constant state of anger? Am I okay with that? Lust is adultery in the heart. Have I just said, that's just the way I am. It's my sex drive. I, I'm just that way. After all, I'm a red-blooded American male. Do we pray for our enemies? Do we forgive our enemies? He goes on. He says in chapter number six, he says, do we practice our religious deeds in front of others or do we make it private and honorable under the Lord? Are we seeking to please the Lord or are we seeking to gain the popularity and the approval of man? Do we give to the needy? He says, when you give to the needy, that's the will of the Father. Are we doing that? He says, um, when you pray and when you fast. He says, don't be like the hypocrites who want everybody to know they're praying and they're fasting. He says, go in secret, get in the secret place. So I have to ask myself, am I doing the will of the Father by pursuing the secret place with him? Or is it just church on Sunday? Or for you guys, Wednesday, twice a week? Do we agonize in anxiety and worry? Because he said, hey, actually, you don't have to do that because the Father feeds the birds and he clothes the fields and you're of way more value than the birds in the hills. 
and he knows what you need before you even ask so don't don't live in anxiety and the Father's will is, is seen to be not, in us not laying up treasures for ourselves on earth, but actually laying up treasure in heaven. Th- this is important. It's impossible to be a Christian and live with an unstricken conscience about never giving. It's impossible. Jesus said, you'll either love your money or you'll love God, but you can't love both. And so it worries me. I don't, I, I don't know how many people in our spiritual family give. I'm, I'm glad I don't. I've said for years, I don't want to know who gives and who doesn't because I'm probably not spiritual enough to, to be unbiased towards people that, that never give to the kingdom. But in one sense, I'd like to know because I'd like to sit down with them and say, are you sure you're saved? Why, Jeff? Because you seem to love your money more than you love the kingdom. And the Bible says that we can't, that it's an impossibility. And so he goes on and on, even to the extent in chapter 7 where he's saying, you can't judge You've got a two-by-four in your eye, and you're working on the splinter in the other guy's eye. The will of the Father is to not be a judge, but to be merciful. And so we don't even have to go anywhere else in Scripture to be able to see that Lord, Lord doesn't mean anything if it's not backed up with the evidence of what it means to look like in the king, live in the kingdom. So Jesus says obedience to the Father is a necessary indicator of true salvation <coughs> pardon me and then I'm going to get I'm going to spend the last three minutes on verse 22 and 23 here's what frightens me verse 22 on that day many will say to me now watch who's saying this Lord Lord did we not prophesy in your name do we not cast out demons in your name Do we not do many mighty works in your name? Let me tell you who some of these people are. They're preachers. They're deliverance ministers. They're prophets. They're signs, wonders, and miracle workers. Here you go. A lot of them are charismatics. And they're doing all of this activity, this supernatural activity in the name of the Lord. And they're standing before the Lord On that day, he's talking about the day of reckoning. And Jesus says, on that day, listen, he's the son of man and he's looking out into eternity future and he's picturing the judgment and he's seeing many people standing in front of the judgment seat and they've learned that they are condemned in that moment. They learned that they had been their whole lives on the Broadway of destruction. They learned that they were around Christian stuff, Christian words, Christian ministry, Christian um, uh, manifestations. And Jesus says to them, I will declare to them, I never knew you. We've never met. And these people's minds are blown. They're literally protesting. They're saying, whoa, 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 whoa. I preached sermons in your name. I prophesied in your name. I came up against the devil and his demons in your name, and they ran from me. By the way, so did Judas, the son of perdition, the one who was damned. He cast out demons. He worked miracles. 
apparently visibly public anointed ministry is not a guarantee of salvation. And so when we're looking at all of this, I'm saying to myself, this is the most frightening verse in all of the Bible to me. Because this pulls back the curtain and it declares over us, don't trust in your theological affirmation. Lord, Lord, don't just trust in that. And then it also says, don't trust in your ministry gifts, your works, your power, your visible, measurable success in church stuff. Don't trust in either one of those. What do we trust in? When those two things come into oneness and there is a reverential, submissive, honoring and acknowledging of Jesus Christ in, as Lord of all, and that confession from the heart, not just the lips, results in a transformed life, which may include prophesying, preaching, casting out demons, the working of miracles. But if you separate them, what you've got is two groups of people. You've got people who trust in their orthodox doctrine, and you've got people who trust in supposedly some anointing. But in the middle, Jesus says, those two on their own are illegitimate. So what we need is this, a bowing to the truth. We need orthodox doctrine. We need Bible doctrine, Bible truth. We have to know the truth, believe the truth, and surrender to the truth. And when that happens, the evidence is a transformed life. And part of that transformation is going to show itself in power over the enemy, proclamation of the gospel. And Jesus said, those that follow me, you've seen the works that I do. You'll do these works and more works you'll do. So there's no happy way to close this message because verse 23 is the destination. He says to these people that said, hey, we prophesied, we preached, we cast out demons, we did many wonderful works in your name. Jesus says, I actually don't know you. You never introduced yourself to me. And now, and he's judge here. He's not sweet little turn the other cheek savior. He's judge here. And he's coming back as judge. He's not coming back, you know, turning the other cheek. The scriptures teach when he comes back, He's going to make war on all that did not fall to the glory of God. And here he says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Somewhere in the mix, they were doing all these great things, but when Jesus characterizes their lives, he says, you never regarded the holy ways of God. You're a worker of lawlessness, and my instruction is for you to depart. I'm going to ask us to stand to our feet. Most Wednesdays, I like to send you out encouraged, and most Wednesdays, I do. Tonight, I want to send you out thinking and, and sober. And here's what I want you to do. Man, I mean, here's, here's the only thing you can do. If in the midst of this tonight, you found your soul lacking, if you've been convicted, there's only two reasons he would convict you. One, because you've been living beneath the level that you should be living as an actual Christian, that you're truly saved, but you've been casual, you've been flippant, you've been kind of self-focused and self-driven. You need to repent of that. You need to repent of it.
Like you need to make a moment before the son of God and say, I be merciful unto me, the sinner. Lord, I have sinned against you. I have not regarded you in the way that you are to be regarded. I repent, forgive me and restore me. That's one response. The second response is this, Lord, I've been one of those that said the words, knew the lingo, knew how to move in certain levels of Christian activity, but I've never repented. I've never honored you. I'm still the one who's been in control of my life. And tonight I'm going to release everything I know about me to everything I know about you. Tonight is my full surrender. Save me, Jesus, and cleanse me from unrighteousness. I want to be wholly yours. Come into my life. Be the Lord over my life from this day forward. I confess that you, Jesus Christ, are Lord, and I need you, and I surrender my life to you. So, Father, take now these moments that follow all the way up until bedtime and continue your message to each of us. We need to hear from you. In Christ's name. Amen.